Surgical Society podcast. I'm Frank Davis, the president of the Surgical Society and host of this podcast. Throughout the year, I'm going to be talking to world-leading surgeons, incredible doctors with interesting passions, and the brightest and best medical students to help you score higher in your exams. Please follow our social media, cu underscore surgstock, and rate and download this podcast. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Alamide Dada, the uh, founder of Melanin Medics and member of the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion uh, group with the BMA. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, so yeah, so firstly, before we sort of um, dive into what we want to talk about today, which is uh, as it's Black History Month discrimination within uh, medicine and surgery, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself? Where are you working at the moment? Yeah, so I'm working in Kent, so that's a KSS deanery. I'm currently working in general practice. Lovely, and are you enjoying that? Yeah, it's going well. I think it's been an eye-opening experience. Uh, there's a lot more to general practice than people realise, so it's been a, a good learning opportunity. Oh, fantastic. And what is it that you're thinking of going into in the, in the future? I always said I'd probably go into general practice and then I started uh, working in general practice and I was just shocked. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'll probably stick with it. Uh, yeah, so general practice. Fantastic. So I'm going to start with, with Melanin Medics. Obviously, you're the, the founder of that. Can you just talk me through how that came about and, and what made you start it? Yeah, so I founded Melanin Medics at the end of my um, first year of medical school. Um, I studied at Cardiff University and what I found was I felt really kind of lucky to have gotten into medical school. Um, I faced a number of challenges. I didn't know anyone who I could kind of reach out to to like help secure work experience and things. Like I contacted so many different practices or hospitals and wasn't able to get clinical work experience. Um, I didn't know any medical students at the time um, and I didn't have a mentor until very late into the application journey. Um, and I met my, my mentor, an amazing woman who grew up in the same area as me. Turns out she went to the same um, sixth form as me and she was working as a GP. Um, and she was mentoring quite a few of us and she helped me with my personal statement and with interview preparation um, and her support was so invaluable and I just wish I had met her earlier really mm. um, and I realized getting to medical school that first of all there was very few black students in our year group in a year group of almost 300 there was less than 10 um, so I was just wondering like what is going on <laughs> God, if it's a capital city I thought it, it would be a bit more diverse in the student group. Um, and then second of all, just speaking to some of my friends, we all had similar experiences of where, where our like school teachers doubted us or didn't really support us compared to other students who didn't come from an ethnic minority background or lower socioeconomic background. Um, and so I really just saw that there was a gap needed, or there was a gap in terms of support being provided to um, black students and so I started Melanin Medics, um, or it was initially called the Melanin Medic. So I, I created the platform, mm. what my medical school offer. Um, and that was like, what, August, end of August in 20, when did I start again? 2016. Um, 
and but then I did nothing with it. I, I just didn't really. I was meant to write an article called like my first day at medical school. Then that became my first week. Then that became my first month. And then I didn't release it. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually when I did release it, it was my first year of medical school. So just talking about that experience. Um, but my friends really encouraged me to like just launch it. Um, so it started as a, a blog, just trying to support aspiring medics and connect medical students with people who could be seen as role models, um, and yeah, just promoting diversity in medicine. Fantastic. And so what is it that Melanin Medics does to sort of support those um, types of students that, you, that you've that you mentioned? Yeah, so Melanin Medics were a registered charity focused on promoting diversity in medicine, widening aspirations and aiding career progression, particularly for Black, African and Caribbean uh, current and future doctors. So by future doctors, that means aspiring medics and medical students, and then also supporting doctors as well. Uh, we do loads of stuff. We do events to kind of connect people in our network together. Um, we have a number of mentoring programs supporting people applying for medical school, people graduating from medical school, and then also those interested in surgical careers. We've just launched a program more recently. Um, we also deliver workshops to medical schools and NHS trusts, really just talking about what it looks like to be a good ally and a good advocate for your patients from ethnic minority backgrounds, as well as your colleagues. Um, and then we also conduct internal research as well. Um, yeah, we, we're quite busy, but we're really kind of focused on positively representing African and Caribbeans in medicine and also um, really supporting the individual while influencing their environment. We know racism and discrimination are something that very much exists in the NHS. Um, and although efforts have been made to tackle it, we still think that more can be done. Yeah, you've touched on a, a programme for surgery there. I'm not sure, I'm sure you are, but familiar with the, the Kennedy report that came out um, sort of a while back and basically it's it's a detailed document which describes some pretty awful discrimination within surgery yeah. how did it make you feel sort of reading that and is that what sort of inspired you to release this more um sort of targeted program yeah so so one thing about you know equality and diversity reports when they're released it gives you language for what for what you knew already or for what right. you know around you have experienced already um, and although I don't have like a personal interest in surgery within the organization we have an interest in medicine and surgery um, and I think it's frustrating because you know nobody should be deprived opportunities because they are of black heritage or they are pregnant or you know a different type of pro protected characteristic uh, that they have but at the same time, I think the report was good in terms of saying, okay, this is where the action, these are the actions can be take, that can be taken. And then in that way, we can hold them accountable to, sit, to what they said they were going to do. But the truth about diversity, it's not a tick box exercise. And, you know, with organizations, organizations are made up of individuals, right? Mm. Um, individuals change every so often. You're getting kind of fresh sets of individuals. Um, and if we're not careful, you know, you get the same type of individual coming in, coming out. Um, but at the same time, culture within organisations and within hospitals and within surgical environments is so important. And it's setting that standard of what, you know, what is expected, what is tolerated, what isn't tolerated, and hoping that that can be maintained, even as 
multiple people from all different walks of life pass through those same environments. Yeah. And those large organisations, so NHS, RCM, RCS, how have they been um, towards melanin medics? Have they been supportive or have they treated it like a, like you say, like a tick box exercise? <laughs> oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there's work to be done. I think, you know, we're fortunate to have um, received some of the funding as a result of the Kennedy report. So, our surgical career development program is called Surge In, the Lewin program. Um, and that's for aspiring and early career surgeons. So from foundation year one up until like early registrar grades like ST4, ST5. Um, and we're really fortunate to receive funding for that program. Um, but I think what's great about being able to deliver this program in surgery is that we can potentially have a use case to for its uh, replicability in other spaces. So, you know, in medicine, developing a similar program for medical careers as well. I think that would be something that would be really beneficial. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think in terms of organisations, you know, we're a small organisation and we're always open to to working with um, everyone, but then we're also very intentional about how we decide to um, work with people. And I think there's always scope for more support, so I'll say that. And who have you found um, support from? Has anyone sort of come out and, and you thought, oh, wow, they're actually really on our side here? Yeah, so I think um, the VMA have have really championed the racial equality medicine agenda. Um, you know, when Melanin Medics first started and it, it was evolving from an online platform to a non-profit organisation, um, I remember being invited to attend a, a like, conference at, BMA House uh, focused on race, racial equality in medicine. And that was before it was like at the front of everyone's minds because of Black, Matter, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, which um, kind of took off in mm. 2020, although it existed long before that. Um, but that conference was really, really kind of eye-opening and it showed that intentionality towards tackling racial equality um, or race inequalities in medicine. And then more recently, they released um, the reports looking at discrimination in career pro progression um, for ethnic minority doctors. So they really have kind of led the, um, the agenda, I'd say, in terms of collecting evidence um, and really tangibly providing recommendations. Um, because, you know, you can't force anybody's hand to do anything because a lot of the time they can just turn around and say, oh, we don't know what to do. But then if you give them suggestions of what to do, then there really isn't any excuse. Um, so, yeah, I'd say the BMA have been really supportive. Um, another one of our programmes is supported by, so our enrichment mentoring programme for final year students, that was supported by the GMC differential attainment um, within that organisation. Um, and that's, again, it's been really good. I think for us, our focus is on, trialing solutions, seeing what works and sharing best practice, um, just so that we can kind of encourage other organisations to take similar actions or to invest in what we're doing as well. So I want to get um, a bit more personal now, if you don't mind. Have you yourself faced any sort of discrimination or, or racism in your time at medical school or even now um, as a trainee doctor? Yeah, so... Um, I think it's quite interesting because in medical school, you know, Cardiff is, I think the people in Wales are 
are great. Um, but then the same thing about being in Wales is that you can get sent anywhere. Um, and it was a huge fear of mine, you know, being sent to North Wales that, you know, I'd experienced racism um, and overt discrimination in a sense. And fortunately for me, I actually didn't. I think one, there was a particular incident that stood out to me though in, um, what was it? It was at the medical school um, and a member of staff was just made a really inappropriate comment um, referencing me and my friend and talking about like our slave ancestors and stuff. And it was just a bit distasteful. Um, but then at the same time, even though at the forefront, I like that was just a stupid comment, mm. <laughs> um, which was not excused at all. And, and it was quite frustrating because it's like, what do you do about that? Like, okay, in the moment you hope, like you wish you could have like addressed it and said, actually, that's not okay to say. But at the same time, I was just trying to get out of that environment, and, you know, with somebody who who's going to make a reference like that. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm not, I'm not kind of ignorant of the fact that people do face a lot worse kind of discrimination and things. Um, and I think I'm really fortunate in terms of where I work now. Um, it's very, very diverse. Like so diverse i couldn't have made it up <laughs> um, so so that's good because if you're already entering a diverse environment then people are somewhat used to seeing different faces um but you know racism and discrimination still exists in terms of how people relate to you i think the complexities of race are closely linked with intersectionality so you know if somebody just dismisses my opinion I don't know if they're dismissing my opinion. Let's say we're in like a, a meeting of 12 people and I'm trying to raise a point and they're just constantly talking over me. Um, I don't know if my opinion is being dismissed because I'm black or because I'm a female or because I grew up in a lower socioeconomic background, you know? So it's really difficult to unpick what a form of discrimination is at play in those moments. What do you think is just going wrong at the moment? Because obviously there's still really bad stories of discrimination, racism, and you like you say, um, even like sexism as well. Where is the NHS, uh, you know, going wrong? Well, I think, I think, you know, having a strong zero tolerance policy um, sets the standard. So when you say you don't tolerate something like racism, you don't tolerate something like sexism, what is happening to the people who are, you know, making such uh, like offensive sick comments and things like that. Um, because if people know that they can say something can get away with it, or they can do something can get away with it, um, then they're going to just continue to do it. You know, what you allow is what will continue. Um, so I think definitely having a firmer stance in terms of this is what zero, zero tolerance means to us. Um, but I think it's a lot more difficult sometimes to kind of break it down because, you know, you might have a, a rotor coordinator who is constantly making you work more unsocial hours than any of your colleagues, but you can't, it's difficult for you to turn around and say, this is because of racism, you know, yeah. because you're, you're directly kind of challenging someone's integrity and, and things like that. So I think that's where it becomes a lot more difficult, I think, because a lot of um, discrimination or, um, it's like an inward thought is how do they perceive me? You know, how do they perceive people of this background and how are their actions influenced as, as such a result? 
Um, but if there is no way to explicitly say this was because of racism, um, then it makes it a lot more difficult to challenge. But at the same time, I think also educating people, you know, why is this not acceptable? Um, why, why saying such a comment, you know, makes somebody feel this particular way? I think there's such a role for that. Um, and I think just having conversation, you know, I think, again, when you're not taking people, it's not a case of, I see a lot of times that people have like large scale conversations, you know, you have all these senior individuals who um, are far removed from the shop floor, as we call it, you know, what is mm. what is the, the HCA experiencing? What is the, the junior doctor experiencing on the ward? What are their experiences like? And what can we do to support them directly? I think those conversations kind of not only reiterate the fact that it's still going on in our environment, but then you're able to see what types of racism people are experiencing in their environment. And I think also with racism and, and discrimination, it emerges in things like dis differential attainment and exam outcomes. Um, and it's not a case of, you know, ethnic minority people um, are less intellectual than their white counterparts, no, not at all. But it's what is it about the hid hidden curriculum that they're not being exposed to? You know, what conversations are they being left out of? When people are sharing resources, why aren't they, you know, receiving these resources and receiving the additional support if they require it? Um, so, yeah, so I think there just needs to be a willingness to understand first. And as we understand, then target our efforts. Um, but I think efforts have been made since Black Lives Matter, um, which is good, but I just hope that they'll be sustained. You know, when everybody's 10-point action plans have been ticked off what happens then because that's not the end of it you mentioned a, a hidden curriculum is there then um in medicine some resources or some groups where they're not being shared or they're being sort of shielded from or kept secret from um people from ethnic backgrounds yeah so so a hidden curriculum is not like oh you can't have this resource because you're black no um it's more like the when people are, you know, going for drinks after work and they're able to speak with like their seniors and that's where they can like ask them questions or the senior will be sharing like, oh, for my um, MRCS exams, these are the courses that I went on or these are the resources that, that I used. And it's just not being privy to those conversations. And another thing is just understanding what cultural competence looks like. Um, you know, people are coming from different backgrounds. How are we able to communicate that things are done differently in the UK than they are in Nigeria. You know, the way we relate with our patients is a bit different compared to how direct you can be in, in Nigeria, stuff like that. Um, so I think it's just communicating the, the small differences um, that come so easily to somebody who grew up in the UK, perhaps, but for an international medical graduate, they're literally not aware of it. Um, and it's not assuming that everybody's on the same or a level playing field, because in reality, that's that's not the case. And you mentioned earlier, actually, that um, when you were in Cardiff, you were um, scared to be put up not uh, into not, maybe the north of Wales, because typically you might face uh, some discrimination or racism there. Um, do you still feel scared? Do you know what I mean? When you're, you're thinking, obviously, you're F2, you're thinking about taking the next steps uh, in terms of your training. Are you scared of where you could be placed because, oh, you know, I could be um, faced to racism here? And, and will that, do you think that will continue throughout your career? Yeah, so so I think it's always a consideration. 
and you know I'm not going to move to like a really remote town of the UK because or oh, I'm less likely should I say to move to a really remote town of the UK, in the UK because I have to think not just about myself but you know my future family and um, what would their experiences be like and I think knowing that you know you're in a kind of metropolitan area or a really diverse area is comforting to a degree because you have people who look like you who've gone through similar experiences and who you can seek support from and whereas being isolated um in an unfamiliar area you know is 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 not very encouraging um and it can have like detrimental impacts on your mental well-being as well um so yeah it's, it's always a consideration that you have to make you know you think about your safety, your kind of psychological safety as well. Um, yeah. Mm. Mentioning the sort of the, the cohort for Cardiff and, and really medicine in general, I, I was talking to um, A.D. Garrett um, the other day about the, the Liverpool NHS bursary and we talked about whether, you know, medicine is an elitist course. Um, I just wanted your opinion on that. Do you think it's full of sort of, uh, I don't know, maybe like rich kids from sort of very long lines of medical doctors? So I think it um, is changing. I think it's changing. I think traditionally, you know, when we, around the time when um, I was like starting medical school, that was a general kind of idea. I think, you know, you're always going to get people getting into medical school who have had more support or who have come from private schools because their staff are well-equipped with medical applications. But, but for like a number of people... I know they were like the first successful medical school applicant from that mm. school, you know, and it, you have to think like, is it that the school just weren't equipped to support their students in that way? And that's why the work we do with Melinda Medics doesn't just reach, you know, um, medical schools, medical students, but then we're actually going into schools and seeing how we can inform students and empower students and, give them the knowledge that they need and give even staff the knowledge that they need um, to support medicine applicants as well. Mm. Do you think it's a bit about um, that these sort of students before medical school just, when, I, when I've spoken to some, there, there's just this like lack of belief that they can even get in and it's so such a stark difference to when mm. you speak to people from that come from private schools who almost always knew they were going to get in. I always think you're, you're always starting off on the back foot even from then, you know? Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. I think, um, of course, imposter syndrome is very real, but that comes from years of your, you know, for me, my chemistry teacher didn't want to give me the predicted grades that I needed to apply for medical school. Um, and we had to fight for that. You know, my dad's a teacher, so he knows where you can challenge a system. Um, and so we did, we went straight to my head of sick form and we told her, or I told her that, you know what, I want to apply for medical school. I've just got into the stage where I actually believe in myself because I did well in my first set of A-level exams. Um, and now the teacher is saying that she's not going to give me the predicted grades. Um, and my and my head of sick form changed the grades on UCAS, not on the school's records, but I ended up achieving the grade that she said I wasn't going to achieve. So what you find is that a lot of black students are actually given lower predicted grades compared to what they end up achieving. And of course, if you have lower predicted grades and you're limited in terms of, you know, where you can apply to for medical school, if you can apply to medical school. Um, so I think teachers play a huge, huge role 
um, in terms of instilling self-esteem um, and confidence in, in young people who have high aspirations and supporting them likewise. Yeah, so I can imagine not many students would have that confidence to go you know, to the head of sixth form and yeah, uh, you did. So bringing it on to yourself, I saw that you um, have written a paper on racial bias in Pulse Ox readings during COVID-19. Can you tell me a little bit yeah. more about that? Yeah, so that was um, during my elective, actually. Um, so I did my elective with the Race and Health Observatory, NHS Race and Health Observatory. Um, and that was a really good opportunity to kind of explore, um, you know, pulse oximeters. And uh, there'd been a lot of literature surrounding pulse oximeters and potential racial bias or proven proven racial bias. So that meaning in darker skinned patients, the readings were less accurate. Um, and that had such a relevance to COVID, you know, um, a lot of people were buying pulse oximeters online that weren't necessarily approved by the MHRA. Um, so they could get pulse oximeters from Amazon and get it delivered the same day. Um, and knowing that those oximeters weren't reading as accurately really just made me think in terms of whether that could have been a contributing factor to the fact that black people were four times more likely to die with COVID-19 than you know white patients um, during the pandemic. And that's a significant difference, mm. you know? Um, yeah it was just great to to work on this report and to just share it um share it more widely so that people understood um the risk associated with it and then that resulted in you know nhs england changing their guidelines in terms of pulse oximeter use mhra issued a warning as well in terms of pulse oximeter use um and a wider project being undertaken by the government um, in terms of medical devices and racial bias as well well, that's, that's incredible. Um, do you think there's more of these uh, sort of racial biases like the pulse ox readings uh, all throughout medicine and we just don't know about them? Yeah, I think, I think you know, in, t in things like calculation, so um, like when calculating renal function, um, you know, there's an adjustment that you make for black patients, but that adjustment literally puts them at risk. First of all, it's grounded or rooted on the fact or the false ideology that black patients have a higher muscle mass. Um, so, uh, but that's like a very much redundant idea. Um, it is actually rooted in um, perceptions of black people during like the slave trade and, and all of that. Um, and just to think about it or the impact of, of that equation is that for a black patient to be suitable for transplant, there's a higher threshold compared to their white counterparts. Wow. So that can have devastating impacts as well. Um, so that's just one example. And I'm hoping as time you know, goes on, even in like medical literature or medical textbooks and um, the presence of diverse imagery, you know, there's so much work that needs to be done. Um, it's so interesting how we just accepted it as like the status quo for so long. And then all of a sudden we're like, wait, wait a minute, why is this like this? Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot more to do. So a quick word from our sponsor for this week. Uh, this episode of the Surgical Society podcast has been sponsored by the Learn to Innovate programme. Learn to Innovate is a one-year cross-university, multidiscipline programme that aims to encourage students to participate in health innovation for a series of workshops, mentorships and a collaborative task. Students who enrol on the course will be exposed to leading innovators in the healthcare and clinical space. 
To name a couple, Dr. James Someru, the co-founder and CEO of SOMEX and host of the Health Tech Podcast, and Dr. Avi Mera, co-founder and managing director of Doctorpreneurs and associate partner at IBM. The program comes to a close as students present their innovation ideas at a Dragon's Den style pitch event to win funding to help bring their ideas to fruition. On a personal note, I was part of this program last year. I can't recommend it uh, enough. Uh, me and my team actually won this. So if you're interested in learning more about innovation in healthcare, picking up some new skills, or have a healthcare innovation proposal, then applications are open until the 6th of November. And you can apply by searching for at Learn to Innovate program on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Um, you were the recipient of the Rare Rising Star Award at the House of Commons and recognised as both the top 10 black students in the UK and one of the top 100 future leaders. Uh, does that make you feel feel proud? Yeah, yeah, it does. It it, it does. I think that was in 2018, <laughs> so it's quite a while ago now. Um, but yeah, it was just a really, a really proud achievement. It was good, good to be recognised um, for the work that I'd been doing with Melanie Medics. And then also it's just a good kind of motivator to keep doing what I'm doing um, and to keep like staying true to what I'm passionate about, um, which is like the medical workforce, making that diverse as possible. And also about um, ethnic minority communities as well and health inequalities and how they impact them too. So yeah, even more passionate. Now. Brilliant. And um, obviously as, as named as one of these sort of uh, 100 future leaders, is that where you see your career going? Or do you see yourself being in a, like a leadership position, you've already enacted a lot of change. Can you do even more in a in sort of a power in a position of power, maybe within the NHS? Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a, a, a good question. Um, yeah, I've I've always into been into leadership, and I think well, I haven't always been into leadership. Actually, I think that's something that I realised um, whilst leading a charity is that there's just so much to learn. Um, you know building an organization from scratch is there's so much to it um and that has really just taught me a lot of transferable skills that I can apply to my like everyday work um and I took part in the healthcare leadership academy as well so that was a good introduction to healthcare leadership uh, and then now I'm on like a leadership themed uh, foundation program as well so yeah I, and I just finished my PG cert in healthcare practice and leadership so looks like I'm on that track mm -hmm. um, but taking it you know a day at a time and as opportunities present themselves you know assessing whether that's the right one to take and if not just continue to do what I'm doing to a high standard. No, fantastic I think it would be very exciting to see to see where you go. A bit of a personal question for me now I'm a sort of a, a white man in medicine I feel quite lucky from the, the background that I, I've come from I feel as though sometimes it's easy for me to talk and say discrimination, racism is obviously wrong, uh, you know, it's it shouldn't happen. But is there anything that I can do to sort of be the, the best ally, if that's the right word, that I can be? Yeah, I, th I think in terms of allyship, you know, it's really rooted in listening, it's rooted in engaging in conversation and also using your privilege where you can. Um, you know, if you, you happen to be in a meeting and you just notice that um, someone's a, like a lot quieter than you are or, you know, they're constantly being spoken over, it's creating space for them. So giving them space to speak, to share their opinions 
Um, I think also just recognizing that you might not always get it right. Um, but an allyship is really something that's reworked or adapted based on the people who you're seeking to be an ally for. So they're the ones who really determine what good allyship looks like in that sense. Um, and at the same time, I just encourage you to to read, to engage with literature. Um, there's so, so many resources out there. Medical Apartheid is a great book as well. Um, just speaking about different like health inequalities and how they emerge and different mindsets affecting um, or different mindsets of ethnic minority groups as they engage with health. Um, but yeah, there's so many different books out there um, to read. And yeah, just, just be committed to learning, be committed to, um, or be willing to apologize when you don't get it right and then just pick yourself up and keep trying. And thank you for coming on the, uh, the Surgical Society podcast. Uh, it's been a very insightful episode, so thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Surgical Society podcast, where I talk to the wonderful Alamade Dada, who is the founder of Melanin Medics, and we talked through discrimination within medicine and surgery. Please tune in in two weeks' time, where I talk to Srinjay, the number one ranked medical student at Cardiff University, with all his tips for you to score the highest you possibly can on your upcoming exams.